Haggai chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give our hearts to him as he addresses us here in his word. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his fold bread touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them, by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. So to this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at an analogy and a metaphor. All right, analogy is something that's similar. Metaphor is a kind of a word picture that we use it together. So the first thing I want you to know is this. This is just go ahead and get started. There's nothing that can substitute for Jesus. There's nothing that can substitute for Jesus. Now, where did I get that from? Well, we start out with the analogy that God sends to the priest. So here's what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to kind of give, I want to kind of lay the analogy out. I want to explain it a little bit, and then I want us to see how that applied to them, not only to them, but to us. So here we go. Very first thing. We're starting in verse 10. Appreciate Andy reading it. It's a large chunk of scripture. Um, but it says on the 24th day of the ninth month, this is two months after what we talked about last week. 
Last week it was in the seventh month. This is two months later. So last week, if let me catch you back up, they, they had... They had stopped building the temple. God came back, got their attention. They were in the wrong. They repented. They started rebuilding the temple. They became disappointed because it didn't look like they thought it would. They were spiritually disappointed. God gets their attention, reminds them that He is there. It doesn't, he's not waiting for the temple to get finished before He comes back and blesses His people and is with His people. He is there. And so they're to work through this and they start back. And so two months later, they're into this. God is just bringing them through. Things are good. Two months later, He comes and says, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. This is all sounds familiar. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests. Now, if you'll remember, in all the places that we've seen before, when the word of the Lord came to Haggai, it usually says, by the hand of Haggai the prophet, he came and it says, say to Zerubbabel, say to Joshua, and say to all of the people. This is very different because now what Haggai is to do is he is to go to the priests. Now, my guess is this is probably not in private, you know, like pull them in the back room. Hey, y'all, i got a pop quiz for you from God. If you fail, you might just be in trouble. But he comes to the priest and he says, ask them this question about the law. It says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with his, touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Any of y'all ever ask somebody that question? I haven't. And I'll be honest with you, the first time I read this, I was like, if you put what, where, and it touches who, and it becomes how, why? You know, and so we look at this, this is, this, is kind of a, this is kind of a foreign idea to us in a lot of ways. Because we don't, we don't have holy meat. Um, why somebody's putting meat in the fold of their garment? I'm thinking, where's your plate? Um, you know, and so we're looking at all this, and it just seems odd. But here's what you've got to understand. As sacrifices were being offered in the temple and in the tabernacle, God is just it's amazing. I wish we could go into all the great detail, but there's a few things. As they would offer the sacrifices, God would provide for the priests through that sacrifice. And so there were certain ways in which they would take this meat and God would provide for them physically by they would actually have some of the meat of the sacrifice the priests would eat. But as this meat was being offered, as this, this, this carcass of this animal has been completely lifted up to the Lord, there were times when they would have to carry it from here and there. And the priest would literally put it in the fold of their garment because they didn't want it to touch anything that was unclean. This was set apart. This was holy. This wasn't like the burgers I cooked last night, though they were amazing and of the Lord, they weren't set apart for the Lord. It wasn't as though that hamburger had been offered for my sins. So you've got to get the magnitude of what it is with this, this, this meat that's being offered. This isn't a meal. This is a sacrifice that someone has brought to the temple or the tabernacle and they have completely offered it up in recognition that they are sinful and that they need forgiveness. And so there's something important about this meat. And he asked him, he says... So if you take this meat and you're carrying it in the fold of your garment and you brush up against a loaf of bread or you touch this stew or you do this, does that become holy? And the priests know the law. So they know that in Leviticus 6.27, it says literally that a garment that has holy meat in it that touches something does not transfer holiness. So they got it right. said, so no, all right. The guy says, okay, another question for you. Verse 13, then Haggai said, 
If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, meaning the bread, stew, wine, oil, or any kind of food, does it become unclean? So now we're in a different situation. We're not talking about something that's been offered up to the Lord. Because in the law, anything, when they came in contact with a dead body, they became unclean. Which wasn't just like they had to go take a bath. What that meant was their uncleanness separated them from the rest of the community. They could not go and worship with everyone else. They could not go and take their sacrifices. They could not go and be a part of the community that was worshiping and sacrificing and glorifying God in this togetherness. They had to stay separate from everyone because they were unclean. And what we find is that the priest knew the answer to this one too, according to Numbers 19.22. If someone was unclean, anything they touched became unclean and had to be cleansed. And so the priests get this right. They say, yeah, it becomes unclean. And so, other than just a pop quiz on the law, why is God doing this? Well, it's an analogy, and so let's look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer is unclean. So now what God has done is he has taken this and he says, okay, I've asked you this question. You know this truth. Now let me tell you what this is. Now just as there were two parts, there was the, if something's holy and it touches something else, does it become holy? Or if something's unclean and it touches something else, does it become unclean? Just as there's two parts, I believe God's answer corresponds to those two parts. So remember, the first part was, does something holy touching something else make it holy? What's what God says? So it is with these people in this nation before me. Let's keep in mind what's going on here. The people have been called back to rebuild the temple. They're working. They're pouring everything they have into this. There's the danger. that They could have something holy in their midst. And they think just by having that holy thing there, it'll take care of everything else. In other words, if we just get this temple finished, everything's going to be great. God will bless us because we have this temple here. And God uses this analogy of the clean thing or the holy thing touching someone else and saying, when this holy thing touches this bread, you don't have holy bread. And what God wants them to know and what God wants them to understand is they need more than to have the temple finished. Just having the temple there is not enough. Why? Well, the second half. If someone's unclean, touches something else, does it become unclean? Yes. Look what it says in the second half of verse 14. And so with every work of hands, what they offer there is unclean. Here's the problem. The temple in and of itself will not purify them. They are still an unclean people. They've been rescued by God, they've been blessed by God, they've been corrected by God, but they still needed to understand there was something that they needed because they were unclean. Hebrews 10 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, 
would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here's what God's doing. And again, we see the goodness and the graciousness and the love of God in this. He has called them back to rebuild the temple. But he says, don't trust in the temple. Trust in the God of the temple. Don't trust in the sacrifices. Trust in the God of the sacrifices. Because here's the thing. We, by nature, will look for substitutes. We will look for things that we can say will make us okay. Here in the deep south, we have a, we have a big way of doing this. I, I talk to people every now and then. We'll start a conversation about Jesus. We'll talk to them about their personal relationship with Christ. You know how many times I've heard, yeah, my granddaddy was a preacher. Okay, my granddaddy was a carpenter. What about Jesus? Because see, a lot of times what we have, we have a culture, we have a church culture where people go to church regularly. And they've heard of Jesus. And so they think that because their granddaddy was a preacher, or because they live next door to a deacon, or, or something, that because of close proximity to somebody else who has an intimate relationship with Christ, they're okay. And so because this thing is near me or this person is near me, I'm good. And what God is doing is he's calling them to say, yes, the temple's there. Yes, you're going to make sacrifices, but the temple doesn't save you. I'm the one who saves you. And yes, you're going to make sacrifices, but really I'm the one who cleanses you. You see, people also trust in things like baptism. Do you know Jesus? I was baptized. Okay. Do you know Jesus? Well, I was baptized. Have you come to know Jesus? Or are you trusting in that moment to say, okay, because I did this, I'm okay. I did this. That makes me okay, right? And the question is, did you do that out of a heart that loved Jesus and was following Jesus and wanted to live a life honoring Jesus? I'm not saying you had to understand every aspect of everything that's going on, but is that thing that you're saying, yes, this was an evidence of a heart that's been changed by Christ. I think the other one that's, that's tough, I was going to mention a few other ones, but uh, this one's the one that um, a lot of times we can, we can trust in our good works. I kind of mentioned it last week. Sometimes we have this idea that when God saves us, it's kind of like he gives us a clean slate and then, then we finish the job. And so people can say, well, well, I do this. I serve on this at church, or I teach this class, or I do this. And hear me out. All of these things that I'm talking about, don't hear me saying that we don't need to do those things. Take a step back with me and ask, why are you doing those things? What is it that's motivating you to do that? Are you doing that so that God will love you? God will accept you? God will keep your forgiveness? God will make everything okay? Or are you doing that because God loves you? God accepts you? God has made everything okay? God sent Christ to die for you and loved you when you were unlovable and a rebel against Him? 
That's the difference. And part of the gospel in sanctification, and I want you to get this, this is why we have to have the gospel not just to get saved, but to be saved, is because the gospel lands on our front porch and points out all of these things that we trust in outside of Jesus. It reveals it because the gospel says you can trust in nothing but Jesus. And if you trust in anything but Jesus, you're missing the point. But God, by His goodness, continue confronting us with the gospel that you can't earn your salvation, you can't earn God's love, you can't earn anything, and it is the most freeing and exhilarating thing in the world because now I don't spend my life doing everything that I can to try to get God to love me or to hope that He'll still care for me. I know that He does because He sent Christ to die on the cross. And so now I say, what can I do to live that out. And when my sinfulness raises things up. And it says. Well you got to do this. You got to do this. Because if you don't do this. God won't love you. Or God won't use you. I had this come up this week. I hadn't spent as much time studying. Last night I'm like, I'm like freaking out. I'm like oh my goodness. what I, did, I didn't study enough. I was, I was telling Andy this backstage. It's like I, did, I didn't. You know. I was like. What, did I not study enough? Did I not. Maybe I should have read my Bible more. Maybe I should have done this. And it's like God just plowed me over with the gospel. And said yes you work hard. And you work diligent. But I don't use you because you're good. I use you because I'm me. And I take ungood and make good out of it. And so God constantly takes this gospel and as he's making us like Jesus, he reminds us that, yeah, there's nothing in us that was worthy of saving, but he is making us like Jesus. So don't trust in anything else. There's nothing else that's going to make you like Jesus. And here we find that tension. Here we find that tension because God says that we are to pursue holiness. We're to strive after it. Romans 8.13, by the Spirit, we're to put to death the deeds of the body. We are to give it everything we are. Paul says, uses the term, a Greek term that says, labor to the point of exhaustion. But we've got to remember that it is always Philippians 2.13. It is he who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And so we strive because of the gospel, in the gospel, through the gospel, for the gospel, by the gospel. And as God takes that, he makes us like Jesus, and we walk forward praising and worshiping him. So what are some things this does for us? Well, I wrote these down because I forget stuff. First off is it helps us fight the separation of Jesus from the rest of our lives. Sometimes we've got like, we've got... My Christian life and my work life and my family life and my whatever. And what the gospel helps us understand is that when Christ redeems us, he doesn't redeem two hours on Sunday morning, one hour during the week, and then one Saturday a month. He redeems us. And now every aspect of our life is under his lordship. So when you wake up and you go to work, it's not just to get a paycheck It's because Christ has redeemed you and he has sovereignly placed you in a place where you can honor and magnify and glorify him. And we can take every aspect of our lives. But a grave danger is for us to think God's over this part of my life. But this part's just, you know, this is just a secular part. This is just a work part. This is my golf part. This is my, um, 
I don't know, you fill in the blank, whatever the other parts are. But no, life is under the authority of Jesus. And as we understand that He has given us all things and that there's no substitute, that means nothing we can trust in, nothing we can do, nothing we can enjoy outside of Him will bring us what it is we need and want. And so we keep Him center of it all. The other thing is this. It helps us to have a greater view of God. Um, I talk to people sometimes and it's just, you know, kind of living on a wing in a prayer. You know, I'm going to, man, I go... Oh. You know, especially working, I used to work with teenagers, and sometimes uh, with college students that I work at work with now, you talk to them, and uh, their greatest prayer time is the night before a final, or or the morning of a final, when they didn't study so much, and so they're praying, dear Lord, please, if I fail this class, my mom and dad are going to take away the car, I'm going to have to have another semester, which means more student loans, so God, would you please just help me do this? I know I only studied five minutes, but please... Somehow, by the power of your spirit, supernaturally, let me understand calculus three. <laughs> Amen. You know, and I say that kind of, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. But, you know, a lot of us is we can go through life. It's not until something bad happens or we really need something that we, we start clinging to Jesus. And he's not a good luck charm. He's not a trinket we keep in a drawer for, for special occasions. He's life. He's everything. And this really, this really has an impact on our worship too. Alright, so there's nothing that can be a substitute for Jesus. Second thing is this. There's nothing that can thwart God's plan. I really wanted to use the word thwart. <laughs> so I did. There's nothing that can thwart God's plan. This can be one of the most freeing and comforting things and empowering things in your life if you will allow it to sink deeply in your soul. It's one of those things I think we know in our head, but living it out can be a little more difficult. God comes a second time on the same day. We've not experienced this in Haggai, but it says in verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And again, he sends Haggai to a very specific person. Now, we've heard of this guy, and I've told you the last past two weeks, get ready, we're going to talk about Zerubbabel. He's important. And God sends Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel is the descendant of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne. And by all estimations, he should be king, except for that whole small detail about Judah being conquered and taken into exile and then being sent back by a pagan king. Now, when this pagan king, when Darius sent them back, or Cyrus actually began returning them, and now even under Darius, these people, it's not as though now everything's, they're free and clear. You know, they're still under the control of this pagan and so he's there. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't care about that. And he's kind of, as a token measure, made Zerubbabel governor of Judah. Which means, Zerubbabel, you do whatever I tell you to do, or I'll squash you and put somebody else in your place. And he kind of does this, you know, so this Zerubbabel is the guy who's supposed to be king, so we'll pick him. We'll let him be governor, but he's a token. He's just a, you know, he's a figurehead. He doesn't do anything outside of what Darius says to do. 
And so for a people seeing this, there's this little bit of hope that it's back, but God has brought them all back. But the one thing is they're still under the oppression of these people. And so God tells Zerubbabel, hey Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. In other words, I'm about to do something big. Everybody's going to see it. And to overthrow the thrones of the kingdom, I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots of the rulers and the horses and the riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. God's about to do something. He's about to overthrow kingdoms. He's about to turn these pagans upside down. They're going to start infighting on each other. They're going to destroy each other. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Here, here we have this metaphor. He said, I'm going to make you like a, or I guess it's a simile. I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Now, a signet ring, especially in those days, I told Carrie, it was funny. We were coming down Charlotte to come to church this morning, and there's a, there's a company, and I have no idea anything about the company, so if they're bad, just ignore me. Um, but it's uh, Insignia, there's, and they've got a sign, and on the sign, the, the name of the company is Insignia, and right next to it, there's this, this red, looks like a picture of a red wax seal with a sign, an insignia in the middle of it. Same root word for this signet ring, and what it was, was as kings or dignitaries or whoever would send letters or correspondence, they would write it, they would seal it up, and they would take hot wax, and they would put it as a seal, and they would take their special ring that only the king had, and they would mark it into the seal, and so what it would do is it would verify, and it would let every single person know that this was definitely from the king. And so it was a way, it was very important. The king never let the signet ring out of his sight. There's a couple places in the Bible where you'll see like the king handing over. I think, I think Daniel received the signet ring one time. And that is huge because that is the seal of the king. That is massive. It is like, you know, when you have to, you ever sign a mortgage and you have to sign your house, you know, your name like nine million times so you can buy a house. And you're like, you know, we will take your fourth born child if you don't make payments and stuff like that. And you sign your name to it. But, you know, when you sign your name, you're saying, this is me. This is the one. I am doing this. God is saying, Zerubbabel, I'm about to do something and I'm going to make you the sign that I'm doing it. Now, this is big, but I think you, we've got we've to back up so we get how big this is. So, this thing doesn't start in the beginning of Haggai. It actually starts in Genesis chapter 3. You know, Genesis 1 and 2, a lot of times we as Christians look at those and are like, okay, we don't believe in evolution, Genesis 1 and 2, okay, now let's move on. But Genesis 1 and 2 are more about just, I don't believe in evolution, it's how everything begins. And God is making this beautiful, amazing creation. It's perfect. It works in harmony. And the pinnacle of His creation is people made in His image. And their fellowship is so sweet and so pure that He walks with them in the coolness of the evenings. And they see Him face to face. And it is unadulterated. It is pure. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. And God says, I've given you everything. All that you could need and my presence is with you. Just don't eat of that tree. And we know what happens. They fall to temptation. What they say is God really doesn't love us. God is holding something back from us. God doesn't want our best because he won't let us have that. And they go to the tree and they eat. Sin enters the world. 
it becomes broken. It doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. It doesn't look the way that it's supposed to. Everything crumbles. God comes down, has an interesting conversation with Adam and Eve, which I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that conversation. Um, hey, where are you? Did you eat of that tree I told you not to eat of? You know, God knows. I'm learning to do this with my kids now. Ask them questions I already know the answer to. Um, and so God does this with them. And so God, the love and grace of God is so profound. Because here they are. They have basically committed treason and said, God, you don't love us. You don't care for us. And what does God do? God slays an animal for them and covers them up. And he banishes them. He gives them punishments. But then in Genesis 3, something interesting happens. He turns to the serpent and he says, I'm going to crush your head. This symbol, this one who exemplified the rebellion against God, God at that point in time makes a promise that there's one who is coming who is the seed of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So then the whole Bible is set on a trajectory of looking for this one who's coming. Because we have great need. We're all in Adam, so we're all sinners. We need the one who's going to crush the one who represents the sin that's living inside of us. So you're reading the Bible. People are like start killing each other, and they start doing stupid stuff. You're like, oh, none of these are them. Genesis 12, God finds this pagan from Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram. Calls him up, says, okay, pack up all your stuff, you're going somewhere. That's, that's about the extent of the message. Pack up all your stuff, you're going somewhere. And Abram responds in faith. And here's what God says. I will make you the father of many nations, and the entire earth will be blessed through you. So now as we're reading, we find out there's this guy named Abram, and the guy we're looking for is coming from his family, because all nations of the families are going to be blessed through him. So now we're saying, okay, it's got to be a descendant of Abraham. He has this child of the promise named Isaac, not him. Okay, Isaac has kids, Jacob and Esau. Esau's really hairy, um, and he sells his birthright. So we're like, okay, not him, maybe it's Jacob. Well, then Jacob's like deceiving people and stealing stuff, and you're like, oh, gone, Jacob. Definitely not you. Can you hurry up and have some kids? So he has kids. He has 12 of them, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you're thinking the first one. The firstborn, that right? There's always the place of promise. Genesis 49, Jacob's about to die. He gets everybody together and he starts blessing his kids one by one. All right? You go to the first one and it's not him. Okay? Maybe the second one. Jacob was the secondborn. Not him. Third, fourth. Then you get to this guy named Judah. Something interesting is said about Judah. I was just going to kind of tell you about it, but I think I want to read it. Genesis 49. God has, Jacob has done all this, and this is what he says. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so now we know, okay, seed of woman, descendant of Abraham, he's now going to be a son of Judah. So we keep going and we keep looking. You can't find this guy. And every time you think somebody's stepping in, you think he's the one until you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We started with this two weeks ago. 
It's where David had a desire to build a temple. And God comes in and says, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And one of your sons, David, is a descendant of Judah. One of your sons will sit on the throne forever. So then we start to understand the significance of the Davidic heir has been taken into captivity. He has been taken off of his throne. It looks, from the outside looking in, that what God has been doing since Adam and Eve is now messing up. It's looking like it's not going to work. Because the, how is there going to be somebody on a throne if there's not a throne? And God here in the end says, hey, Zerubbabel, by the way, I'm about to raise you up. And you, kingly language, are going to be like my signet ring. But the whole point is not to get us to Zerubbabel. The point, really, is to get us to Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew chapter 1, it's not just a list of a whole bunch of names of people you've never heard of that's just hard for you to pronounce. Because starting with Adam, you go through all these descendants, and you stop at Abraham, and you keep walking up, and you see Judah, and you keep walking up, and you see David... And you keep walking up and you see Zerubbabel and you get to the highest point where there's Jesus. All of history has been working towards Jesus. And here at the end of the verse, God is reminding us, by the way, I've not forgotten my promises. This pagan king's got nothing on me. I'm about to do something that you would not believe. God puts Zerubbabel back in his place as he continues on. We see it culminating in Christ. This is good news because the same God who sent Christ is the same one who is working out the rest of history for the one who is coming. He came before as a suffering servant to die for the sins of of people. He is coming back. This time, everybody will understand that in Genesis 3, we find out that Jesus crushed the head of Satan and sin. In Genesis 12, we understand that Jesus opens the door for every nation, tribe, and tongue to be reconciled to God. In Genesis 49, we understand that He conquered our greatest enemy, death, and reigned supreme. In 2 Samuel Salmon, we realize his throne is secure in heaven, never to be removed. In Haggai 2.23, he is the signet ring, that is Christ, testifying to God's faithfulness and love for a broken and rebellious people. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. The point of all of it is Jesus. So here's, here's what I want you to know. Really, there was... You know, when I, when I preach a lot of times, I like to have two or three, two or three points of application at the end. Like, okay, let's, let's apply this. What does this look like? How do we, how do we take this and put it into practice? And there, there's really only one point. The gospel's everything. And as God's people, we must remember, treasure, savor, and live the gospel every single day. It is vital. 
Because it is the gospel that reveals those things that we trust in outside of God. Brings them to the surface. And it shows us how to walk back to the cross. Trusting and trusting in that alone. It is the gospel where we find the God whom we're supposed to trust. The one who promises that he will bless us and take care of us. And we walk in there and doing it. When he told that to Haggai in chapter 2, he told it to the people. What did he say? Hey, nothing's bloomed yet. Seed's still in the barn. You've not even planted anything. But here's what you need to do. You need to walk in faith knowing that I will do what I say I'm going to do. And so if God has said that he will make us like Christ, if God has said that he will provide the Spirit that we might defeat sin in our life, if God has said he will work in us to will and do his good pleasure, if God has said that he will do this, God will do this. And so the call in our lives is to walk in faith, sunk down deep in the gospel, and giving it every single thing we've got, spending our lives in pursuit of the one who gave his life for us. We're about to time move into our time of worship through singing. And it's a time where we can verbally respond to what God has shown us in his word. So, as we do this, I ask you, maybe you need to sit for a minute and worship and pray. Maybe there's something God's putting on your heart. Maybe there's, there was something that, even as I was talking, that there, there's, a, there's a substitute in your life. There's something you're trusting in outside of Jesus. Is that something you need to repent of? You see, God is gracious and good that he would, that he would point these things out to us is such a good thing. It's such a good thing that God would reveal these things that are sinful and wrong in us so that we can repent and turn back to him and experience him fully. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you are great and good. And to know you and to love you and to serve you is a greater privilege than we could ever begin to imagine. And Father, as you draw us to Christ, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see that and to love that and to treasure that more. And God, as we think about being a people who would spend our lives uh, for the gospel, I pray that this would drive us and empower us to be very bold about what has happened to us. Unapologetic that the God of the universe has set the trajectory of history on exalting His Son and that we get to join in that. So Father, would you do that in us and through us and for us? And Father, now as we have a moment to express to you um, the overflow of a heart that's enamored with you, I pray that you would open our mouths and our hearts and that we wouldn't just sing this morning, but we would live lives radiating worship. Father, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name.